The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, we'll go ahead and turn uh, over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And uh, we'll read the, the passage where we left off from last week, which is uh, 37 to 40. Paul says in verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So, uh, we've been going through 1 Corinthians 14, and we're going to finish uh, the, the chapter with this final paragraph tonight. But then we're going to move into um, a uh, more of a biblical theological study on the nature of prophecy and tongues. And even going through chapter 12 and now through chapter 14, We haven't really um, drilled down deeply in those two areas. And so we're going to have a sort of a bigger picture perspective tonight on the nature of tongues and prophecy. And by the way, we'll be in this probably for two or three weeks, what they are. And then, of course, um, a very important question that a lot of people just take for granted, uh, and that is whether they continue Uh, today or not. And I'm going to tell you that uh, you probably already know this is obviously a very controversial subject. And so as we go through this issue of prophecy in tongues, what I want to do is I want to uh, fairly represent the positions that will be presented. Uh, you, You know what it's called when you present a position that you don't hold to and you intend to then turn around and refute it. And you do it, you just kind of set it up in a way, we call it setting up a straw man, right? A straw man argument. And the, the problem is, is when it comes to these issues of, of tongues and prophecy, setting up straw men arguments on either side, it doesn't matter which which view, setting up straw men arguments actually doesn't advance uh, understanding at all. Uh, all it does is makes people defensive. And so we're going to do our best to not to set up any straw men and, and uh, give this serious consideration, all right? So Paul has been giving really explicit instruction in how tongues and prophecy should function in the church. And you have to keep in mind that as Paul's doing this, the reason he's doing this is because uh, the Corinthians had uh, exalted the gift of tongues as the highest gift. Paul says it's it's simply not. Uh, They were abusing the gifts. Uh, They were abusing in particular tongues. They were abusing also Uh, Apparently, the way that prophecy was to be done, uh, it was absolutely chaotic and unorganized, and Paul is bringing a correction. So so contrary to to popular opinion about 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's not not pushing uh, tongues and prophecy. He's correcting the misuse of tongues and prophecy, and that's important to keep in mind. And so he's given explicit instruction on how it is to be, how it is to operate in the church. And then he gets to the passage that we came to last week, which he even addresses the issue of of women in the church. And um, it's very possible. And so, it, not to repeat last week, but but the fundamental problem trying to wrestle with 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul commands women to be silent is that it appears in chapter 11 that they're permitted to pray and prophesy. So if they're allowed to pray and prophesy, then the command for them to be silent 
uh, is not obviously an absolute command. And as we pointed out last week, if it was an absolute command, it would also preclude them singing in service and so forth. And so I uh, propose that the context would, would really sort of focus on women not engaging in judging prophecy, which would have been a more authoritative function, and also the idea of, of perhaps women challenging uh, the men even with their questions in the context of, of the assembly. And so Paul tells them that they need to be quiet. If they have questions, they should ask uh, their husbands at home. And uh, then he gives this, uh, he asks this question that's a rhetorical. Uh, was it from you the word of God first went forth or has it come to you only? In other words, Listen, Corinthians, uh, the, the, the word of God doesn't begin with you and it doesn't end with you. You don't have the right to actually just do things the way that you want to do them. You, you are bound by the word of God just as sure as all the other churches are bound by the word of God. All right. So that brings Paul to this final paragraph, verses 37 to 40. And he's going to talk about order and authority in the church. And so he begins verse 37. And, uh, you know, if you follow the flow, this uh, addressing this at this point, um, you can kind of get a feel for this Corinthian assembly. So he says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual So he says, he starts off by saying, so I've just given instruction. Now, if anyone in the Corinthian church thinks that he's a prophet or thinks that he, now, by the way, spiritual isn't, we've said this a hundred times. It's not spiritual in the way that we think of spiritual. It is the idea of being a person of the Holy Spirit, right? So being a Holy Spirit person, right? So if anybody thinks, thinks he is a prophet or a pneumatikos. These people, in all likelihood, in, in the context of this paragraph that Paul's addressing, would probably be the very people on the basis of their self-proclaimed prophet, prophetic office or spiritual status were probably resisting or even rejecting what Paul was saying. And so you have these people who just saw themselves as spiritually superior to Paul. By the way, this this is, um, if if you think about it this way, this 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 idea of having a group of people who thought they were spiritually superior to Paul in 1 Corinthians is is a is a problem but by the time you get to 2 Corinthians that problem that was let's say this big in 1 Corinthians is now this big in 2 Corinthians okay. so this has been an issue. In fact, if you just flip back to chapter 3 for a second, you'll see that even from uh, earlier chapters, Paul is uh, having to address this issue. First Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. In other words, the Corinthian church is just full of people that, that had deceived themselves into thinking they were super spiritual, super gifted, uh, super wise. And so Paul now has to address these who have a very high opinion of themselves. And so if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him know that what I write is the Lord's command. Now, you know what Paul's doing here? Paul is pulling out his apostolic card. Okay? Paul is playing his card at this point 
as an apostle. Now, here's, here's the... Um, <laughs> Here's the clear uh, uh, indication in the New Testament, and that is apostles have more authority than prophets. Okay? Apostles, capital A apostles, have more authority than small p prophets. Okay? And so when an apostle writes or speaks, he's writing or speaking not only under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but under the direct authority of Jesus Christ, right? So if you think about the qualifications for an apostle, you think about the authority of an apostle, you realize that Paul is the one who has now spoken, as it were, the thus saith the Lord. He speaks authoritatively as Christ's representative and he's spoken authoritatively on the gifts and so those who were prophets or who were spiritual didn't have the same authority and so remember what Paul says um, by the way it's not as if Paul was just we're just making this up remember back in chapter 12 verse 28 Paul says this and God has appointed in the church first apostles Second, prophets. Third, teachers, and so on. And so, by the way, the first, second, third, there is, um, there is a descending order. And, of course, it's first apostles, then prophets. So, Paul is simply identifying the fact that, that what he has just written to the church has the approval, the imprimatur, if you will, the, 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 the stamp of approval of the head of the church himself, Jesus Christ. You remember um, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, it's interesting who... What prophets are we talking about there? So we could, well, we'll get to that in a little bit. But notice the apostles were foundational. Now, prophets were too, but there is a priority that the apostles had. In order to be a prophet, you didn't have to see the resurrected Jesus. In order to be an apostle, you did, right? Uh, To be a prophet, you weren't necessarily directly commissioned by Jesus To be an apostle, you had to be directly commissioned by Jesus. So the apostles just simply had more authority. And so here's here's how then Paul puts it. So it's sort of terse in in the Greek text. If anyone ignores, that is if anyone who claims to be a, a, a prophet or spiritual, if anyone ignores, he's to be ignored. That's... That's actually just the, the simple force of it. Uh, you, you could translate it, um, if anyone doesn't acknowledge, that is my authority and what I've just written, he won't be acknowledged. Okay. Now, <clears throat> there's a sense where um, Paul is, is obviously talking about, at least at one level, the church, right? So let's say you've got... Um, uh, Joe Prophet, and he's like, yeah, what Paul said is th- that doesn't make any sense. That's not the way we do it. The Lord told me we should do it this way. And what Paul's saying is, listen, if that guy's ignoring what I'm saying, that guy needs to be ignored. Okay. By the way, it's not a bad idea to ignore false teachers. But there's probably something that is, that is weightier than just don't give any attention to that guy. Don't pay him any mind. If he won't acknowledge what's being said, he won't be acknowledged. Could very well be a statement of judgment. Acknowledged, not just are not acknowledged just by the church, but by God himself. Okay. You, you do remember 
that uh, passage at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, prophesy in your name, and I will say to them, depart from me, workers of iniquity, I never knew you. That is, they're not acknowledged. So the idea of simply ignoring the apostles, the idea of simply rejecting what the apostles had to say and actually thinking that you had more authority than the commissioned apostles of Christ um, may very well be um, uh, worthy of divine judgment. All right. Now, Paul then resumes the idea of, uh, of exhorting them to be zealous in the gifts so therefore, my brethren, so that, notice that term of endearment, right? This family, family terminology. Um, by the way, I, I think that, that there's probably a sense with Paul when, when he says something hard, right? If they don't acknowledge, they won't be acknowledged. That's, that's a hard thing. Oftentimes, there is, there is almost an immediate uh, re- resuming of language of endearment, right? So he just said something hard. Now he says, my, my brethren, right? My family. Okay. So this, uh, this term of endearment, my brethren, then he says, earnestly desire to prophesy, which by the way is how he started this chapter back in uh, chapter 14 and verse one, be zealous for spiritual gifts, but especially that you would prophesy. Here he says, earnestly desire to prophesy. And then he adds very quickly, but don't forget to speak in tongues. Now, the don't forget or, or don't forbid to speak in tongues is going to be definitely qualified by what he has said about how tongues should operate. In other words, he's not undoing everything that he's just said in the previous chap in the previous section, right? It's not as if don't forbid speaking in tongues. That means everybody can speak in tongues at the same time. Nobody has to take turns and there doesn't have to be an interpreter. Don't forbid speaking in tongues if it is in line with the parameters that I've set. Now, I think that the reason Paul does this is because it's very easy for us to go to extremes, right? You, you, you do, maybe not everybody's wired this way, but a lot of us are wired to go to an extreme, so here you could imagine these, you know, this uh, tongues free for all in Corinth and they read through the, the, the chapter and they, the, the, the leadership concludes prophecy is more important and, uh, and all of this babbling has just got to stop, right? It's just easy to go to an extreme. It doesn't have to be gifts. I mean, it's, you know, there's a reason why when people become um, brand new Calvinists that they call it the stage cage or the cage stage. You, you know why? Because they should be locked in a cage for the first few years because they get very extreme and very, you know, combative and confrontational with people. And that's just, that's just our tendency. You know, we're over here and then we hear something and all of a sudden we're over here. And Paul's probably just simply trying to get them to avoid from going all the way over there. And so then he reiterates the principle, everything's to be done decently and according to order. Okay. By the way, verse 40, very, very crucial uh, and, and, and incredibly important that that's the way he ends the chapter. Everything, everything, that means in terms of the context of the worship of God by the church of God. Everything that happens within the context of worship should be done decently. The word decently means appropriately or, or, or even correctly, which by the way means that there is a 
correct way to worship God and an incorrect way to worship God. Okay? And so they're to do everything decently, but then he uses another word and we translate it in order. Um, the, the Greek word ataxis has the idea of, uh, it's, it's a military word actually, good order, proper procedure um, in, in, a, in a military sense, assigned positions. And so Paul says everything that's done in the context of the worship of God is to be done appropriately, correctly, and it's to be done with good order, proper procedure, assigned positions. Now, you you do understand that this is probably 180 degrees uh, uh, opposite of what the Corinthians were doing. So Paul has just laid out the instruction for the corporate worship of God by the church. It is to be for edification. There is to be peace. There is to be decency. And there is to be order. There's not to be anarchy or confusion or the worship of God, which would be inappropriate. Now, you know, I think that for us uh, at, at Grace, we've heard this enough over the years, but you, you do understand that in terms of the church, more broadly speaking, the idea of worship is often just driven by what you think is going to be most effective or what you think is going to be most popular or what you think is going to uh, be most appealing to this group or to that group. And, and here's the thing is that God himself, this, this is the way that our confession puts it. Nature teaches us that God ought to be worshiped. Okay. Scripture shows us how God is to be worshipped. This is, this is what we call the regulative principle of worship. That is, the word of God regulates how God is to be worshipped. So if, let's just assume that God is really, really serious about the fact that he is the object of worship in our worship services, not you. Okay. Do you think God's pretty serious about that? Absolutely. It's like he's, he's the object of worship, not you. If you're not the object of worship, then you don't get to choose how God is to be worshiped. By the way, this is, this is the, the, the next time somebody says, I can worship God just as easily up on, uh, up on the mountain by a lake than I can in a church. Then you say, well, where has God told you to worship him at a lake uh, and not in church? You don't get to pick how God is worshipped. So if God is the, is the object of worship, then God is the one who gets to tell us how he is to be worshipped. Okay? So imagine, um, imagine you, are, um, you belong to a, a, an ethnic group that has um, really deep, long-standing traditions. Okay? Let's just... Choose uh, Dutch, for example. Okay, and um, the uh, oftentimes people that are Dutch are are very proud of being Dutch, and you know you can go to Schott's Bakery and Bishop and get bumper stickers that still say, "If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much." All right, and the idea of uh, of of the matriarch and patriarch in in a Dutch family is very very uh, important. And so the grandmother is often referred to as Oma. Okay. So imagine uh, Oma is having her 90th birthday and uh, all the families there. All right. And Oma looks around and there's no birthday cake. 
And Oma looks around and there are no presents. And Oma looks around and all of the normal things that you would expect to be at a birthday, um, they're all missing. And Oma says to the oldest son, where, where's the cake? Uh, where, where are the wooden shoes? Where's, where's this tradition? Where's that tradition? And the oldest son says, well, you know, we put a lot of thought into this, Oma. And what we, what we realized is that we were going to be inviting friends that weren't Dutch. And so they really wouldn't understand some of our traditions. And so we've decided to actually just put aside those traditions for the sake of not confusing our visitors. Oma would turn around and say, whose birthday is it? Who's the party for? Why are you here? Is it to please your friends or is it to honor me? And I I, I feel like that that often is is a reflection, a dim reflection of of what happens in church. We we, we set aside um, the very elements of worship that that are ordered for us in scripture, commanded for us in scripture. And we, we set them aside because we think, uh, well, people won't understand or people will be bored. And all the while, it's as if God says, well, who are you here for? You do things decently and in order according to my word. And so... There are certain things that may be popular that we'll never do because they are not commanded in God's word. There are certain things, certain trends that, 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 that people get all excited about. And the fact is, is that we won't do them. They don't fit the pattern of, of edification, peace, decency, and order, which is established by God himself. And so, um, if you think about it, our services, which I'm really longing for us to get back to, are simple, right? The scripture is read. Do we have any warrant? 1 Timothy 4.13, give attention to the public reading of God's word. We offer up prayer. I, I urge all men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands, praying for kings, governors, rulers, authorities. So we are ordered to pray. So we offer prayer. And it's not as if we make sure we just um, do these little short prayers so people don't get bored. Sometimes our prayers go on for quite a long time. And then we turn around and we sing. And why do we sing? Because we're told to sing. And then we preach. Why? Because we're told to preach. And the word of God has a central role in each and every. And, and notice there is, there is an order. Wouldn't you think it was weird if you showed up some Sunday and we didn't sing, I just preached? Or wouldn't you think it would, was weird if, if we waited and did the invocation at the end? You do the invocation at the beginning. Why? Because that's part of the service. That's part of the order. That's part of the assigned position. There's a reason why you do what you do. And so here's Paul, and and he's simply trying to get these Corinthians, listen, do what you do, but do it decently. Do it in an orderly fashion. Worship is never to be a free-for-all. And so we gather together for edification and to love the saints, 1 Corinthians 13, to love the saints is to edify the saints. And edification depends upon intelligibility, peace, and good order. By the way, if you wanted to summarize what Paul's major point was in 1 Corinthians 14, in fact, you could just... Turn to the beginning with, just look at these verses as we, you know, we we think tongues prophecy, but look at verse 12. So also, since you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. 
Verse 19, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 25, the secrets of his heart are disclosed and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, disorder, but of peace. Verse 40, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14. So that brings us then to the, um, to the big issue of the nature of these gifts now. All right. So just, just remember, as you go through that passage, as you go through it in your own Bible reading, you revisit it, just remember what Paul's trying to do. You can see those verses, how they punctuate edification, peace, order, right? And that's what he's, that's what he's aiming for, all right? But there's still this big issue of what about the nature of these gifts? What, what was or what is speaking in tongues. What was, what is prophecy? All right. So what I'd like to do is uh, I'd like to put up a slide that I developed. Now you, there is no way I can barely see that. So I doubt you can see it. Um, All right. So (laughs) maybe I should have printed one up for you. That is a little tiny anyway. So Really, what we're getting down to is two different perspectives on what we're going to call the sign gifts, all right? The revelatory gifts. Okay? Nobody, nobody argues over the gifts of help or gifts of administration or things like that. The, the controversy always comes in terms of what we could call the sign gifts or the revelatory gifts, all right? Now... There are two major camps, and you you can at least see that. On the left, continuationist, and on the right, cessationist, all right? So continuationist would be the idea that all of the gifts continue, okay? Cessationist would be not all the gifts continue, some have ceased, all right? Those are the two big pictures, but... I want you to understand that these two big perspectives are nuanced. In other words, not all continuationists are the same and not all cessationists are the same. All right. Very important to understand. So, um, I mean, I've not had a few, which is a figure of speech to say I've had many people that have said, oh, you're a cessationist. You don't believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, that's a straw man argument, all right? Oh, you don't believe in miracles, right? So you, you can see there, there's, a, there's a way to kind of treat the other side that is, uh, that is really disingenuous, all right? So let me just do this quickly, and you can't really see this. Uh, I'll send this out. Uh, in fact, I got to scoot up a little bit. So continuationist, okay? I have this divided into two different camps, full continuationist and partial continuationist, all right? Now, I, I hope this actually helps, helps us. So, Nathan, can I have uh, that so I can actually read it? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> It looked big in, on my computer. All right, so uh, the, first, the first category, you see it off to the, the upper left there. Are there living apostles today? Okay. The full, the full continuationist says, yes. By the way, was apostleship a gift? Absolutely, Ephesians 4.11, 
apostleship was a gift to the church, all right? So the full continuation is says, yes, there are living apostles today. The partial continuationist says, no, apostolic ministry was foundational. It does not continue, all right? Uh, continuing authoritative divine revelation. Okay. Let me say it again. Continuing authoritative divine revelation. The full continuationist has to say what? Yes. The partial continuationist says no. Okay. Very important. The idea is that for the partial the canon of scripture is closed and it is the final authority of God. All right. Um, Charismatic gifts continuing prophecy, both full and partial. Yes. Although they may not agree over the exact nature of what those are. Uh, Tongues and interpretation. Yes. Healings full uh, continuationist. Yes. Partial. Yes. But the gifts of healing are not exercised according to the will of the person who has the gift, but according to the will of God. Okay? So in other words, partial continuationists, someone like, for instance, Wayne Grudem, would not see somebody just having the gift of healing, just going around going, be healed, be healed, be healed, be healed, right? It would be gifts of healing that God may um, mediate through a person, all right? Um, miracles, yes and yes, but again, the same thing. Uh, God sovereignly does the miracle. It's not just at the will of the person to just do a miracle, all right? Um, demonic activity, authority over demons, yes and yes. Now, who would be full continuationists today? Now, this is, this is interesting, all right? Um, first of all, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Do you know why? They have living apostles. And they have ongoing revelation. Okay. Not only the Book of Mormon and Pearl of Great Price and Doctrines and Covenants, but also the living apostle speaks authoritative revelation to the church today. Okay? This is why you have changing doctrine in Mormonism. Okay? All right. Um, so <laughs> we don't usually think of uh, Mormons in this light, but actually, according to uh, apostles and ongoing revelation, they would be full uh, continuationists. Um, there's another group that we don't usually think of, the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we don't, we usually think of this thing in just in terms of charismatic, non-charismatic, but um, do you have um, a, a, a living apostle? We have apostolic succession, okay? So, the Pope is the Bishop of Rome who is in apostolic succession going back to Peter. Is there ongoing revelation, theoretically, in the Roman Catholic Church today? And the answer is yes, when, when the Pope speaks ex cathedra. Okay. Now, this, the, every time the Pope speaks, by the way, that's not, according to Catholic dogma, that's not ex cathedra. So um, this, this present um, socialist hippie Pope, um, when he says things like, well, that part shouldn't be in the, the Lord's Prayer or whatever, that's not necessarily speaking ex cathedra. When he speaks ex cathedra, ex cathedra means from the throne. And so he does have the right, um, uh, according to Catholic tradition, to establish new 
authoritative doctrine. All right? So, in that sense, apostolic succession and ongoing revelation. All right? Now, here's, here's the group that is probably more in line of w- with what you're thinking, and that is um, what's called the New Apostolic Reformation. All right? Um, the, uh, the, the people over in Reading at Bethel would be a perfect example. Um, uh, Bill Johnson and um, um, Valatin, Chris Valatin, identify themselves as apostles. Okay? They're living apostles. The New Apostolic Reformation is, uh, is sort of a restorationist movement and what that means is, is that um, in these latter days, God has restored the apostolic office to the church. And of course, these guys are, are apostles. Um, it's funny, when you go to uh, Zambia, you'll see um, billboards everywhere uh, uh, advertising conferences with apostle so-and-so, right? And then you'll get like, prophet so-and-so and and bishop so-and-so, but man, apostle so-and-so, all right? And so um, this this movement in particular uh, sees a continuation of the apostolic ministry and, by the way, continuing authoritative revelation, okay? Um, And by the way, this movement is, is an absolute tragedy, it is, it is a blight on the body of Christ. It really is. And, um, and so, um, of course, ongoing miracles. Um, but a, a lot of the stuff, um, and uh, you might remember about a year ago, a little more than a year ago now, I did in Sunday school a thing on the Word of Faith movement, and then we kind of wrapped up with the new apostolic reformation. Uh, you have to realize that um, the the claims are audacious and uh, never verified. Okay. But silly things, angel feathers coming down, um, angel dust, gold dust coming down, um, all kinds of strange things. You might know that they made the news just a few months ago. One of their worship leaders had uh, a baby and the baby died and they were praying for the baby to be raised from the dead. Of course, that story just sort of fades because obviously the, the baby wasn't raised from the dead. Um, these kinds of movements are detrimental to people's faith. Okay. Um, one of Bill Johnson's favorite uh, statements is God is bigger than a book. Now what that means, okay, so in a sense, we could agree with that in a sense, right, Charlie? You could, you could say that in a sense, but a very qualified sense. What they mean is don't let the Bible restrict your view of God. Okay. Well, if God's transcendent and he's infinite, then yes, he's bigger than a book. But the way God has chosen to reveal himself is through the book. And the minute that you go beyond the book, remember what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't go beyond what's written. Okay? So, full continuationist, you should be thinking, um, this will date me, uh, danger, Will Robinson, danger. Um, <laughs> used to watch Lost in Space, right, Vic? <laughs> Dangerous. Bad news. All right? Now, move over to the other category, the partial. I would say that there are people, um, and, and people that I, that I um, 
have met, people that I respect, that fit into the partial category, that are trying to maintain the supreme authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and yet a continuationist position. Wayne Grudem would be the most um, uh, well-known, Sam Storms as well. And so, uh, and and what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, Wayne Grudem's view of prophecy next week, because he has a very qualified view of prophecy, which is still supernatural and spirit-driven, but he has some some uh, strange ideas. Now that takes us over to the cessationist view real quickly, and that is you have. Let's start with the full cessationist over on the the right side. Uh, apostolic ministry today, of course not. Okay, apostolic ministry was foundational. Um, continuing divine authoritative revelation, absolutely not. Closed canon, sufficient Bible, charismatic gifts. Continuing, you can at least see this much, right? No, 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 no. Now, get to miracles and healings, there are some extreme versions of cessationism that actually says uh, no healing today. In fact, ironically, a book that Sam Storms wrote back in about 19, the late 70s, uh, I, I brought this up with him and he was a little embarrassed about it because it was a book that he wrote while he was a graduate student and having graduated from Dallas Seminary and uh, he argued, uh, it was, it, the book was on divine healing and he argued God doesn't heal today. Now he's all the way on the other, other side. But there are people that are cessationists that say, um, God does not miraculously heal. Now, there's not a lot of people like that, but there are some, okay? Uh, in fact, these people would often, uh, would also um, uh, deny the idea of, uh, of demonic possession as well, okay? So, move over to the partial cessationist view. Um, living apostles today, obviously, no. Um, and by the way, the minute that a person says there are no living capital A apostles today, that makes them to some degree a cessationist. All right? You see why. Uh, continuing authoritative revelation, absolutely not. Bible's final authority, sufficient. Um, charismatic gifts continuing. And notice, you can't even see that, but it says not normative. In other words, the partial or the nuanced cessationist says the charismatic gifts or the sign gifts or the revelatory gifts are not normative for today. That's not to say that they cannot happen, okay? but it is to say that they're not normative. In other words, the church's life and health does not depend upon them in the way that the first century church did, all right? And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Uh, The idea of prophecy, uh, they would say, if you mean this, this, or this, no. If you mean this or this, yes. Okay? So it all depends on what the definition is. Uh, Tongues. Not normative, right? So no longer a gift that's necessary. Uh, Healings, yes, but according to God's sovereign will. Miracles, yes, according to God's sovereign will. Demonic activity, uh, yes, but usually the emphasis is on what would be called a truth encounter as opposed to a power encounter. Does that terminology make sense to you? So in other words... Um, the way that you combat principalities and powers is not by going around naming demons and having formula prayers of exorcism. The way that you encounter the powers of darkness is with the truth, which, which is the sword of the spirit. Okay. All right. So uh, I know this hardly answers uh, all the questions that are uh, buzzing around in your head right now, but 
These are the two major positions, but understand there are nuanced positions within the positions. Okay. So what we're going to do next week, by the way, I'll, I'll give this to you so you can take a look at it. And, and, um, I see Travis, he's continuing to pull his eyes to see if he can't get a little bit better vision up there. Um, so what we're going to do next week is we're going to start with the nature of prophecy. Okay. And all we're going to do, we're going to simply start out and just look at every New Testament text that mentions prophecy. Okay. Then we're going to look at the different views and we're going to spend most of our time on, uh, on, on Grudem's view because it's, it, it needs to be understood and dealt with. All right. And then Lord willing, after that, I will give you what I believe is the biblical proposal on understanding prophecy. And then we'll do the same thing regarding tongues. All right. So, um, oh, just turned to eight o'clock. Sorry, no time for questions. Have to do it next week. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the gifts that he gives to your people. And we thank you that, um, that you've helped us as a church over the years to, to strive to do everything for edification and to do things decently and in order. And we pray, Father, that that would continue, not only through the remainder of, of this generation, Lord, but into the next. And we thank you for your word. And Father, we, we are mindful that heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will never pass away. And so we pray that you would give us a, a deep love for what we know to be a sure and steady foundation, which is your revealed word. And so, Father, we thank you. Give us charitable hearts towards those that disagree with us. We pray that you would help us to be valiant for truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.